This is Backstory. I'm Brian Bellow. The bulk collection of all Americans' phone records all of the time is a direct violation of the Fourth Amendment. Three years after NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden exposed secret government surveillance programs, and with the new Hollywood movie Snowden in theaters, Americans are wondering, how much surveillance is too much? Today, we're looking at how previous generations have answered that question. In the 1880s, a new credit ratings agency and its secret informers raised a lot of eyebrows. The response of the company was uh, essentially to say, our correspondents are the finest men in every community in America. Trust us. A history of personal data collection, today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Ed Ayers, and I'm here with Brian Ballow. Hey, Ed. And Peter Onuf. Hey, Ed. In 1855, a New York City office received a tip from rural Virginia. It concerned a local fellow named Robert Brown. October 16, 1855. Brown is one of nature's best sons that takes things as they are and does not push about anything. We do not mean that he is a lazy or slovenly man, no. He is a nice, good gentleman, a little liable to be imposed on by sorry men that profess to be gentlemen. This tip was duly noted in tiny handwriting on one of the pages of an enormous folio volume. Six months later, there was another tip. They report that he is a large land and Negro holder, meaning he owns a lot of land and he owns a lot of slaves. He's an extravagant liver, much in debt, considered very good for debts. Indeed, he is considered rich, high-minded, and honorable, but spends more than he makes. Every six months, another update would arrive concerning the personal and business dealings of Robert Brown. A little over two years after that first report, the central office received this notice. To my surprise, he has failed. I knew he was in debt, but I had no idea he owed one-fourth as much as he does. Now, these reports dry up during the Civil War, but a few years later, they pick up again. By the 1870s, it seems, business had turned very much south for Robert Brown. In business some two years, no capital known of has always been unsuccessful. Character very good, capacity moderate, caution advised. Uh, And in the final report in 1880, no means advise caution. Our reader here is Scott Sandage, an historian who has spent many hours combing through records like these. You see, Robert Brown was hardly the only American whose profile was being carefully compiled in six-month installments many miles away. Tens of thousands of other Americans were also being closely watched by people in their communities, people in the employ of an outfit called Tappan's Mercantile Agency. It was the nation's first credit rating company. And this is the origin of, you know, what we all live in terror of. This is going into your permanent record, young man. And Robert Brown's permanent record shows that although he um, has a great approach to life and and is a, a gentleman in 19th century terms, he's just not a good businessman. In June 2013, Americans learned from ex-NSA contractor Edward Snowden that the U.S. government had been collecting massive amounts of data about our cell phone and Internet communications. Ever since, there's been debate about whether these surveillance programs keep us safe or invade our privacy. And so today, we're replaying an episode from a couple of years ago that pushes this question back through time. We're asking... How did Americans in earlier generations keep tabs on one another? And how much resistance was there? We've got stories about a census showdown, vigilante spies, and a data miner in Virginia who made it his mission 
to separate black from white. We'll begin with the story of Louis Tappan. Now, Tappan was a New York merchant and a prominent abolitionist who lost his business in the Panic of 1837. He discovered that the people who owed him weren't good for the money because the people who owed them couldn't collect their debts, and so on. And so Tappan got to thinking, if he could somehow figure out who was likely to be a deadbeat, he could sell that information to other businessmen, and they would all be less likely to fail in a future panic. Scott Sandage explained how this idea would become the business model for that mercantile agency we were hearing about a few minutes ago. Tappan started out by relying on eyewitness testimonies from a few abolitionist friends in a handful of cities. By 1850, nine years into his business, he has 2,000 correspondents in just about every town in America. And their job was to send in reports on particular inquiries about particular people. More well, genera- very genteel language, his correspondence with That's, inquiries. Eventually they're called <laughs> agents, but initially he refers right. to them as correspondents um, in a journalistic sense. Um, you know, right. these are correspondents reporting from the field. And they really are doing investigations of their neighbors, right? To whatever degree they are inclined to do so. Um, Uh There are, at the beginning, no guidelines for them of what is relevant, what is not relevant. You get a a real mixture of local gossip, uh, inside information, uh, personal habits. Let's say you were a subscriber to this. How did you actually find out what you paid for? You had to go to the offices of the Mercantile Agency, which were behind Wall Street in New York City. And you went in, and what you saw was a long row of very uh, high 19th century Ebenezer Scrooge-type desks. And behind each of those desks was a clerk, and when you came to the head of the line, you would fill out what was called an agency ticket of inquiry. And the clerk would hand it to a page boy who would then uh, skedaddle into the stacks, which you could see, you know, row upon row, shelf upon shelf of these immense red leather books um, that the page boy would then bring and plop it down on the Ebenezer Scrooge desk and it would thump, you know, like a family Bible and it would be opened to the (laughs) precise page where the information on the person you were seeking could be found. They did not provide written copies of the report. They were, from the very beginning, leery of libel. So they would read you the information, and you were permitted to take notes, if you wished. So th- th- this sounds even scarier than reading your credit report on freecreditreport.com then, right? You're being read with sort of a Charles Dickens-like glee at your uh, character and its failings. And the thing is, it could be read to others, but not to you. Oh. You had no right to know what information there was about you. You had no way of knowing whether it was correct or incorrect, and if it proved to be incorrect, you had no way of forcing the company to change what it had written about you. So what might one of these reports sound like, Scott? This is a report from uh, J.M. Phelps in Oak Grove, Virginia, who uh, in 1855 is a large land and Negro holder, again. um, And the reporter says, I suppose he is good for what he owes and perhaps a good deal more, but any man that gambles and drinks, you know how far he ought to be trusted. A few years later, the... uh, reporter is clearly annoyed that he has not yet failed since morally he is bound, you know, bound to fail. July 1857, generally drunk and gambles, it is said, credit sinks, but he is yet good for his debts. Better make him pay lest he fail without doing so. (laughs) So business had been going on for centuries without this system. What happened in America in the 1830s that made this come about? Well, we're in the time of American history when people began to know what a stranger was, uh, people began to encounter strangers on railroad cars, in cities, uh, on steamboats. And strangers were people that didn't really enter your mind in earlier times of American history. The transportation revolution, the communications revolution, and the various financial and business revolutions that were happening 
made it more and more likely that you would not only meet or encounter strangers, but that you would have to get involved with strangers, particularly if you were a businessman. If you're a wholesaler in New York City, you've got to sell to retailers in Wisconsin, and you do not have any of the traditional ways of sizing that person up as trustworthy or not trustworthy. So and they certainly you, can't ask a friend. What do you think? I mean, right? Because they, they don't know any friends. Um, so we're beyond. <laughs> right, exactly. So so business has moved beyond the realm of kith and kin and community. We were now seeing confidence men and forgers and swindlers of all types. And so there really needed to be a middleman who would collect and vet to the degree possible information and make it available in a systematic fashion. And yet, we know there was a lot of people, for pretty obvious reasons, who pushed back against this system, right? Can you tell us what what that reaction was like to this? Many people, and probably most people, were quite happy about it. Others, including people who felt injured by the system or felt wronged by the system, um, spoke out against it, wrote editorials, filed lawsuits. The editorial that I thought might interest you the most... Uh, is from a Cincinnati, Ohio paper called The Penny Press. And this was published on September 15, 1859. The headline is Espionage at Home and Abroad. A statement has been going the circuit of the newspapers that since Napoleon III has declared a general amnesty to all political offenders, the system of espionage is as rife as ever in France. In short, that there is a policeman in almost every house, and people here are correspondingly shocked at this fact. Do they not know that a system of espionage just as despotic and perhaps more potent is exercised at our own doors, of which they never think of complaining? By means of the mercantile agencies, the spy system is ramified throughout the whole country, the most secret actions of men, not alone in mercantile matters, but in the private life of the merchant himself, are recorded on the books of those agencies and open to the inspection of whoever pays for the privilege. The espionage of the mercantile agencies can blast the prospects of a merchant and ruin his character forever. The espionage of the French emperor cannot do more. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. The response of the company to the pushback was uh, essentially to say um, our correspondents are the finest men in every community in America. Uh, We take very great care to ensure the confidentiality and um, control of the information that we collect. And essentially, they were saying, trust us. You know, we have a good purpose in mind to make doing business safer for everyone. And we are a responsible business, getting information from responsible people, and um, we will treat it accordingly. Scott Sandage is a professor of history at Carnegie Mellon University. His book is Born Losers, A History of Failure in America. Hey, Backstory listeners, we're assembling a history of American manufacturing for an upcoming show, but we're doing something a little different. We're going to focus on just five objects in order to tell that story, objects that reflect the twists and turns of America's economic history and how they affect U.S. culture. Take the nylon stocking. It's a great example of how the 20th century synthetics revolution found its way into every aspect of American life. So much so that in the 1940s, a nylon shortage even sparked a riot. This is where you come in. We'd love for you to tell us what object best tells the story of American manufacturing. Is it the cotton gin, the microchip, or maybe a simple union card? Record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to backstory at virginia.edu. Or leave a comment on backstoryradio.org and we'll reach out to you.
One of the people who famously embraced data collection in the early 20th century was a young Department of Justice lawyer named J. Edgar Hoover. In 1919, at the tender age of 24, Hoover was appointed head of a new department within the Bureau of Investigation, the Radical Division. Historian Beverly Gage, a biographer of Hoover, sat down with Brian when we first produced this show. And he asked her, why Hoover? What qualified this young man to take over the government surveillance of radicals? One of the things that actually made Hoover so appealing for this job was not only that he had worked in the Justice Department looking at enemy alien issues, but before that, he had earned his way through law school working at the Library of Congress. And we don't often think of this as being terribly revolutionary, but in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, libraries were devising all of these new ways of classifying information, of figuring out how to get people the books they wanted as there are more and more and more books being hey, the printed. The Dewey Decimal System, when did that start? Right. That started in the late 19th century, as did the Library of Congress system. And these are the, still, in many libraries, the two main ways of classifying books. And so when Hoover was at the Library of Congress, they were just in the process of kind of finishing this massive, massive cataloging task. So Hoover had certain skills as a lawyer, but his real skills and the thing that made him valuable was that he knew how to manage and classify information. Because when he stepped into the bureau, the way that he described it. They had been kind of keeping tabs on people during the First World War, but it was all really, really disorganized. So if you wanted some report that had come in on someone, uh, it would take hours and hours and hours, and you'd just be going through these stacks of information. And what Hoover does is he actually systematizes that. And the first thing that he does when he arrives is saying, we are setting up an index card system Mm. to keep track of political radicals in the United States. And that's his first big innovation and the thing that kind of makes his name within the Bureau. So what what did he have on those index cards? I assume that there was an index card on individuals, that that was the basic organizing principle, and what would be on the card? Well, what would happen basically was that you would have investigators out in the field, and they might be undercover investigators, they might be agents of the bureau, and they would go to a meeting, or they would get a tip from someone, and they would write up a report. And Hoover said, okay, copies of this report are going to come in here. And what we're going to do is we're going to figure out how we can file that report so that we can get it the moment we need it. So he had a whole staff of people who would sit down, read through each report and set up these index cards. So if a person's name is mentioned in this report, the number of the report goes on that person's index card. If there's a particular organization mentioned there, that organization has an index card and the name of that file or the number of that file goes on that index card. Same thing for places, same thing for ideas. Ideas. And this seems ridiculously straightforward to us <laughs> and seems like, you know, in the age of Google, oh my gosh, how meticulous and laborious is that? But in fact, it was this kind of technological marvel in its moment. Can you cite any uh, breakthroughs or, you know, big busts that came as a result of his filing system? Did he cite any? Well, the funny thing is that though this is his great claim to fame, his first attempts to really do something big with this on a massive scale actually turns out to be quite a disaster. So Hoover comes into the Radical Division in August of 1919. As I said, he's 24 years old. He's very confident about his filing system. Um, And it's already floating through the Justice Department that what they're going to do with all of this new information is begin a campaign of deportation against radical non-citizens. So mostly at this point, anarchists and communists. And Hoover is basically put in charge of that effort. Um, And so a few months into his tenure at the Radical Division, we have the first of what are known as the Palmer Raids. And those are raids on Uh, a group called the Union of Russian Workers, anarchist organization. So they conduct this first round of raids in November, the second much bigger round of raids against the brand new communist parties in January of 1920. And these are massive informational enterprises because it requires figuring out where all of these meetings are happening, getting thousands of warrants for people, um, and then going in and sweeping them all up. 
But as it turns out, the information is not so well organized. There are all sorts of people for whom they don't have warrants. They're sweeping up citizens and non-citizens. And so the first attempt really to use this in this kind of grand, dramatic way is actually something of a failure and has gone down as one of the great civil liberties violations in American history. I'm assuming that didn't deter Hoover's confidence in his system. It did not deter Hoover's confidence in his filing system, right. which he was very confident about for a very long time. It did actually teach him a lesson that a lot of this probably ought to be done First of all, more secretly, the Palmer raids were very, very public. And he didn't also want the law too well defined, right? He wanted to be able to kind of operate in a kind of gray area where it was going to be up to the intelligence agencies, up to the intelligence establishment, and up to him in particular to decide uh, what was proper and what was necessary. How long did the card filing system last in what became the FBI? Did it make it to the FBI in the 30s? Did it make oh, it beyond? Yes. So it made it well beyond. Hoover became actually finally director of the Bureau in 1924. And he died there still as director of the Bureau in right. 1972. And for most of that period, the card system went through some evolution, but it was the basic way that the FBI uh, conducted its filing system. By the late 60s and early 70s, they were beginning to engage computer systems. Uh, but but <laughs> I think this was still the basic. Well, systems exactly. These the bureaucracies FBI. move slowly, and especially under J. Edgar Hoover, they, you know, he had his ideas and they they stayed pretty pretty consistent most of his life. Beverly Gage is an historian at Yale University. Hoover wasn't the only one with a penchant for filing in the 19-teens. Our next story looks at another bureaucrat who was, in some ways, a kindred spirit. Walter Plecker was a Virginia doctor who became head of the state's Bureau of Vital Statistics in 1912. Right away, he set about creating a bureaucracy worthy of the 20th century. He insisted on better sanitation for midwives to use. He set up the system of birth certificates so that everybody could get registered. This is Helen Roundtree, a cultural anthropologist who studies Virginia Indian tribes. She says that Plecker's leadership modernized the Bureau, making it more efficient and more organized. But his reformist zeal had a dark side. He was also a racial purity nut. And he was determined, as the cliche goes, to keep the white race white. Plecker's big project was to ensure that mixed-race Virginians would not enjoy the privileges reserved for whites under Jim Crow. And the Vital Statistics Bureau was a great place from which to run that kind of campaign. At Vital Statistics, he had access to all sorts of data that he could use to supposedly prove somebody had African or Indian ancestry. Now, he got the names of living people who might be, shall we say, suspicious in a number of ways. A fair number of the county court clerks were actually in sympathy with white supremacy and pure white race and all of that. And anybody they thought was suspicious, trying to register as white and not looking correct, the clerk was liable to turn their name over to Plecker. I so see. He so, so he had, did get tips from people on the ground. Oh, yes. He got a lot of tips from people on the ground, and some of them were county officials. In 1943, he actually tried to expand that network. He sent out a circular listing county by county the surnames of people who he suspected were going to try to pass as white. Let, let me get this straight. As late as 1943, in the midst of a war fighting Nazi Germany, Walter Plecker is sending out circulars talking about racial purity? Yes, this was going on. Parallel. Boy. In addition, Plecker welcomed tips, anonymous or otherwise, from interested citizens out in the counties. And he got a lot of these things by correspondence, and quite a few of them were just malicious. Clearly, the information that Plecker was operating on was suspect, to say the least. All of it was suspect. So how did he actually work? What were his 
techniques. Uh, they didn't have computers in, in those days. And I gather that listing one's race was rather haphazard before the 1920s. Plecker relied on two major sets of records. One set of records were the U.S. census population schedules. The other set of records was to be found on the county courthouses. In 1853, Virginia issued registers to all the county courthouses. And by that, I mean great big books that were called registers, Mm -hmm. birth registers, marriage registers, death registers. Those registers usually had racial designations in them. So, of course, when Plecker decided to begin having research done, he sent his people out to get all the information he could from those registers. Were there other forms of data that he used? In the county courthouses, there was another kind of record made, and that was the register of free Negroes. You had to get a certificate stating that they were of free birth. Otherwise, they could be kidnapped and sold into slavery. The law about that went in in 1806. Plecker was able to get copies of those registers. Every county had one. And then if he got a tip later and he could have his people traced genealogically back to a free Negro register, he had that present-day person as a person of African ancestry. Let me get this straight, Helen. Yeah. You're, you're saying that data that was used to ensure the liberty of free blacks in the early 1800s was turned against African Americans a hundred years later. Yes. Do you have any examples of how Plecker's uh, interventions affected the lives of individuals? There was an Eastern Chickahominy family living in Hampton. The father of it was the ticket agent at the railroad station. His children were in the white schools. But Plecker intervened in the late 1920s And he had the school board remove all of this family's children from the white public schools. It was done on a school day. The kids were simply hoiked out of the classroom. It was all humiliating. The reason for it was made plain either then or immediately afterwards. And the kids were sent to to the colored school. And at that time, the county, Elizabeth City County, spent nine times as much per pupil on white students as on black students. What became of Walter Plecker? When did he retire? He retired in 1946, and within a very few months, he was hit by a truck crossing the street. Dare I ask the race of the person driving the truck? I've never been able to find out, but I know a lot of people who wish they were behind the wheel. (laughs) Helen Roundtree is Professor Emerita of Cultural Anthropology at Old Dominion University. She wrote about Walter Plecker in her book, Pocahontas' People. Ed, Peter, there's so much to talk about in that interview. But what strikes me as particularly relevant right now, given the controversy over the way the NSA is collecting and using data, is the unintended consequences of collecting data in the first place. The way data is collected for one reason back in 1806 and then a century later put to completely different uses by a completely different set of people interested in completely different things. Right, right. Well, we've always been a data-generating people. We need to record every transaction from birth to death to property transactions. So you have all those data points out there, and they may seem pointless to us, but then they can be assembled and are assembled. And, you know, it's not always for malign purposes. So I'll give you a a case in point that is you think about freedom suits uh, in early Virginia, and you think about Indians establishing or people with Indian ancestry who were enslaved are establishing their ancestry beginning with a free Native American woman, an Indian woman. And that's a legitimate grounds to sue for your freedom. And what's amazing to us, we think of Virginia slave society as this totalistic uh, and unjust system, and of course it is, but there's room to wiggle. There's there's room to move if you can establish the documents, if you've got the if data. If you've got the data. And yeah. you, you can be freed. And it seems in some ways to be just a complete flip from what you're describing. Yeah. 
where the taint, the faint suggestion of one drop of uh, black blood makes you— But the you, data are the same. It's the same they data. They don't change. That's right. It's the That's history they're, they're, and the interpretation. They're, they're neutral. You know, Peter, talk about the neutrality of this evidence and how it turns out to be this force for great evil, really, yeah, in exactly. the 20th century and, and using this to disrupt these people's lives. But as you know, I'm always trying to look on the bright side. <laughs> yeah, make lemonade out of this one, Ed. Go yeah. ahead. Well, it's, it's interesting to think about these very records that Peter's talking about all the way back in the 17th century that are first beginning to separate out who might be Negro mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. white and doing all that. And, you know... Our very own tribe of historians has gone back and used those right. records with remarkable skill yeah. to bring to life people who are otherwise completely forgotten. Yeah, it's a process of what uh, historians call record stripping when you have a variety yep. of data points that are just seem random and they don't add up to anything. Until you have to pull them together. Then they add up to something, and you might even reconstruct the life of an individual. It's quite amazing. But ironically, the method is that of Plecker. Right? Yeah, that's it. That's record <laughs> that stripping. Trying, yeah. All these different kinds of evidence of connecting things that would not have been connected at the moment of creation to recreate somebody in in the past. Which sounds to me like exactly what the NSA is doing today. It's funny you'd say that, Brian, because there's a hilarious blog post that actually imagines what if the people at the time of the American Revolution had had the techniques of the NSA today, and they could uncover the conspiracy that was roiling the North American continent. Yeah, this was posted by a sociologist named Kieran Healy, and it's about the run-up to the revolution in Boston. You know, that was a conspiracy against legitimate authority. And I remember, this is from a British point of view— And what we do in order to find out who is behind all this, who is the terrorist that we need to capture, because, you know, that's what the British are interested in. They want to hang the people who are responsible for this because they're traitors. So you do this metadata analysis. You get all the groups that have kind of revolutionary leanings, Tea Party types, you know, the Long Room Club, St. Andrew's Club, the Loyal Nine, a whole bunch of them. Sounds very threatening. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So you find out who has membership and what group, how they overlap, how they could be connected through groups or as individuals. You don't look at any communications. You can't tap the wires. You can't. uh, No purloining. No, nothing. (laughs) All you know is who is connected with whom by some close association. You put it in motion, mix and stir, and what you end up with is, and this is the punchline, so hold on to your tri-cornered hats. Who is the chief terrorist? Sam Adams. Close, but no cigar. Or beer. It's Paul Revere, okay? It's nothing he said. You don't have him on tape. You don't have him saying, I am a terrorist, but you can identify him from the outside in using this metadata. That sounds like guilt by association to me, guys. Uh, It is all about association. That's called social network analysis. And that's kind of a new frontier, guys, in uh, social history of coming back in and finding the networks among abolitionists Mm -hmm. or among authors in the antebellum period. Ed, there you go again, Ed. You're taking this nasty thing, all this metadata analysis, which we're all so upset about now, and you're saying, hooray, this is going to be an historian's tool. He thinks like (laughs) that, Peter. I've never met a data I didn't like. (laughs) I met a lot of dates who didn't like me, Ed. (laughs) In the late 1950s, the Census Bureau unwittingly ignited a major controversy about how much information gathering is too much. They proposed adding one very simple question to the 1960 census. What is your religion? This question had never been on the census before, and organizations like the ACLU were immediately suspicious. Were an individual person's religious beliefs really any of the government's business? But one group... Catholics saw this as a golden opportunity. In the pages of major newspapers, Catholic organizations made a practical argument for the new question. They said that they needed better demographic information about their parishioners. They needed up-to-date data that would help them build parochial schools and hospitals right where they were needed. 
They also had sort of another argument that you see in the archives, but you don't see in the public releases. This is Kevin Schultz, an historian at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And this was sort of deeper question about Catholics' place in America. Catholics were always thought of as something less than Americans, a group that couldn't necessarily participate in free-thinking democracy because they were subject to the orders of their priests or their bishops or their This is a huge issue even for uh, John F. Kennedy when he runs for the presidency. Absolutely. And this debate happens right before. This is three, four years before John F. Kennedy runs. And Catholics see this as, well, if we get all this data, we'll show how good Catholics have been. They've been excellent taxpayers into democratic society. Mm -hmm. They've been participants in several of the largest cities and civic undertakings in American history. And if they were able to show that they were more numerous in those big northeastern cities that were still the cultural capitals of the United States, cities like Chicago and New York and Boston, then they might be able to exert their political strength. And what is the actual language they used internally to argue for this? Well, the largest force sort of backing this question was this organization called the National Catholic Welfare Conference, the NCWC, basically the political arm of the Catholic Church in America. And so in these NCWC documents that I dug up in the archives, they say things like Catholics should use every proper lobbying technique available to get this question affected on the 1960 census. They identify groups out there that will come out against this, and we need to counteract the actions of those groups. And the group, of course, is unnamed. We know that it'll turn out to be the Jews. So tell me about um, the religious opposition to putting this question on the census. So the collection of Jewish organizations, the American Jewish Congress, the American Jewish Committee, all sorts of these organizations start crafting a defense against including this question on the 1960 census. They start writing letters to the newspapers. They start writing letters to the Census Bureau. And they craft an argument that basically circles around the First Amendment, that because people who choose not to answer questions in a decennial census will be punished by law, we will be forced to reveal where all the Jews live, where all the minority religious organizations live. And this will impede in people's willingness to practice those faiths. Wow. Now, you have to understand the specter of the Holocaust is hovering over all of this. Sure. And Nazi Germany used census bureaus sure. and computerized data tablets and things like that in order to identify and locate Jews and other persecuted minorities. And Jews are not afraid to make these arguments. They'll say things like, look at what happened to Nazi Germany if you're not concerned about government tabulating data on what kind of person you are, what kind of things you believe. So, Kevin— I understand that one of the concerns for some of the Jewish groups was combining all the data in the census to provide kind of a profile by religion. I think it's referred to as cross-tabulation. So you could put together the fact that somebody was Jewish and their occupation, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the primary concerns. Um, I have a letter from, from a rabbi from Philadelphia who asks, do you want the following questions answered by no less an authority than the U.S. government? What is the average Jewish income? How many Jewish bankers are there in the U.S.? So they were extremely concerned about cross-tabulations, especially for the reasons stated there, that just at this moment where they were being finally socially accepted, all of a sudden this data would come out revealing questions about Jewish income, Jewish banking. And showing them to be really different than other Americans. In all the worst ways that the stereotypes had them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So what kinds of techniques did the Jewish organizations use to uh, enter the battle? The first thing they do is they cause such a stink that it poses the threat of disrupting the actual 1960 census itself. In essence, they're, they're threatening civil disobedience, really. Go ahead. The, you know, this is wrong. Go ahead. Arrest me for not answering the question. Exactly. Me and not only the 3% of Americans that are Jews, but we're going to go around and cause a big stink so that people will also refuse to answer questions about the highest level of grade completed, what kind of occupation they have, right. things like that that make people feel like the government is getting a little too close to their own personal 
uh, interests. Mm -hmm. So the Census Bureau is petrified that Americans will just refuse to answer the question. They don't want to go around persecuting all these Americans for refusing to do it. They really encourage people to do it, and they don't want it to be sort of a negative thing. And actually, this threat that there will be this civil disobedience and that Americans in mass will refuse to answer the census question is enough of a threat to scare the Census Bureau. So in 1957, they actually declare that they will not have a question on religion in the 1960 census. Mm -hmm. So that happens very, very quickly. Now, there's, there's a little kink in the story, which is while this debate was going on, the Census Bureau was starting to f- learn how to gather data. And how they do that is by posing questions in the field. So they did a couple surveys, some very small surveys, one of 431 homes in the Milwaukee area, and then a much larger one of about 40,000 homes across the United States. So this is before the issue was decided and they're beginning to test how they would ask this question? Exactly. So they encourage the debate, and while the debate is going on, they also start testing questions in the field. So they collect this data in 1957, and this has all the cross-tabulations that the Jewish groups are are fearful for. And what the Census Bureau recognizes is that this is a contentious debate right now. And so that what they decide to do is release two reports. The first report is just going to be a couple pages. You can find it at your local library now. And it's just going to talk about the number of Jews, the number of Catholics generally, where they live. But they're not going to have the cross-tabulation data on income and and profession, things like that, that the Jewish organizations are concerned about. And what this first report does for American Jewish groups is it puts them – it makes them hypersensitive about this second report that's going to come out that's going to have all the cross-tabulation data. So this is where their second technique comes in. What they do is they look for, and this is quoting, like-minded others who are going to be opposed to the tabulation of religious data. And basically, they go through their American history textbook and see which religious groups, (laughs) except for the Catholics, had been persecuted. And they start writing letters to the leaders of those organizations. They find out that there's a senator from Utah who is Mormon, and they write letters saying, you don't want the American government finding out where all the Mormons are and how much money they make and where they live and how many children they have, these kinds of things. And sure enough, this second strategy is incredibly effective. All of a sudden, this becomes sort of a national debate in the halls of Congress. And then the second report, which they said was delayed because of rewriting, sits and sits and sits in the Bureau of the Census Hall for up to two months. And then finally, two months later, a very plain letter comes that you can look in the archives and see. And it says, in consultation with the president, we've decided that we are not going to release the second report. Wow. Well, this leads to this incredible scene where... The head of the census, Robert Burgess and Conrad Tauber, have already been invited to go to the conference of the American Sociological Association to talk about the data. And they get up there in front of their panel and they basically read the report saying, we're not allowed to talk about the data that we had intended to talk about. And people ask them questions and they say repeatedly, no comment, no comment, no comment. So the sociologists get angry. They say this is the first time that the federal government has actually gone through the process of writing a report and then suppressed it due to politics. Yeah. So you've referred to politics. Kevin, was there something about the argument made by the Jewish groups uh, opposing asking this question that really resonated more broadly, that helped them win the day? I think the Jewish organizations recognize the importance of falling back on the strong American tradition of liberal individualism, of we are all individuals. We do not want to have a large entity like the government looking over our shoulder the whole time, placing us in whatever groups it sees fit. So they use this language citing the fact that Americans are standing on their own uh, as, as individuals. Catholics, on the other hand, had a, they were pulling from a different American tradition. Catholics themselves have a longstanding history of advocating uh, the benefits of a community and talking in terms of is it good for the lowest member of the community as well as the well-to-do members of the community. And so Catholics were much less interested in the concern about uh, an individual having their privacy impinged upon and more interested in the question of how will this data help the community? Where should we place these schools? Where should we place these hospitals? But I think the communal argument that the Catholics were making lost out a bit, perhaps because of the language of the Cold War that was then going on. 
where communism is by definition sort of a communal way of structuring your economy. And here in America, we're opposed to all things communist, so therefore we can't side with that kind of argument. Kevin Schultz is an historian at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His book is Try Faith America, How Catholics and Jews Held Post-War America to Its Protestant Promise. You may be wondering just how much of your own personal information is out there in a database somewhere. So we put in a call to a man who knows the answer. Ron Brown is a skip tracer, somebody who finds people who skip town to avoid paying their debts. When he got started in the business in the 1970s, he relied on the telephone and on his wits. Um, When I got in the industry in 1973, the primary tool that we used was the telephone book or information. If we could get a telephone number for you, we could break the number. It would go to a physical address and we knew where you were. If we could get your employment number, we could break that number. How would you get those numbers in the first place, assuming a person had disconnected their phone? When a person would fill out a a credit application or something, they would list relatives and references. Good skip tracers would have to talk to those people and get them to give them the information. Now, there were no laws protecting information at that time. So many, many scams were used. Uh, You'd call somebody up and tell them, you know, that you were with the high school reunion group or that, you know, you had a check to deliver to them or, you know, there was all kind of scams. I've never been a user nor believer in scams. I found that in the skip tracing process back then when I had to talk to people, I was always Ronnie. And Ronnie creates a picture of a young, non-threatening person, which people will give information to. We're taught to help young people. But in the 70s, it was all done telephonically. Let's flash forward to 2013. Without giving away too many trade secrets, uh, what does that same process of finding uh, someone who skipped out on a, a debt they owe look like? Cyber trackers. Hmm. Where once you left a paper trail, you now leave electronic trails. There's all types of social sites. There's all kind of data stored on you on the Internet. It's unbelievable. I would tell you this. With your name and the city you live in, Within five minutes, I can have your social security number. I can tell you where you live, when you bought your house, how big your house is, how many bathrooms you have, who financed it, how much money you owe on it. Within 24 hours, I can tell you every bank account, checking account, savings account, stocks, bonds, anything that you have under that social security number. So give us a couple of examples of how you would find out what kind of house I live in, and how to go about collecting from me. i go to a database called Master Files. I would put your name in and the city you live in if I had your Social Security number. That is going to give me information on you. It'll give me your current telephone number. These data brokers buy this information from various sources. If you order pizza, that pizza company, that's proprietary data that you sell them, your address and phone number. If you fill out warranty cards, the information you put on that warranty card becomes proprietary data. They own it. There's no law protecting it, and they're allowed to sell it. There's big money in that. Any information that you give to any lender, unless you opt out under the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, and the act was written backwards, in my opinion, the way the law was written, it says they can sell it unless you tell them not to. What do you have to do to opt out? I, I confess, I've, I've ne- I didn't even know I could opt no, out. No, every, every year, every credit card company, every bank, every finance company, they have to send you an opt-out notice. It's usually buried on the back of your bill. But, you know, we're lazy. I, I'm in the industry. I've never opted out of anything. <laughs> uh, so that's the first place I would go to establish a background on you. Then I would go to social sites, and I, there, there's one called Spokio. And if you're a member of any, if you're LinkedIn, if you're uh, Facebook, if you're MySpace, it will show every single thing you belong to. Really? And I can go in there and gather all that data. Now, you may be hiding from me. I, would, I didn't plan to, but actually now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> you may set your, your profile to be restricted. I can only see it if I'm your friend. I can't ask to be your friend. It'd be violating the law. 
But what I can do is look at your friends. They're not hiding, and all their messages are on there. We found a gentleman a while back who was running with a $90,000 Porsche, and we were always one step behind him, always. Oh, it's a fast car. I mean, you know, we, there was no pattern to what he was doing. We checked his Facebook, and we saw where his friends were talking about meeting on St. Patrick's Day at a bar in Boston. So we had pictures of him that he had posted on the Internet. We sent those pictures to an investigator in Boston. They staked out the bar that everybody was going to meet at. They saw him. They followed him to an apartment complex where he was staying with his friend, and there was the $90,000 Porsche. And the next day, we had helped that gentleman get back on his feet, literally. (laughs) I love that phrase. Let's just imagine that I'd like to skip town. What should I do to make sure that an unscrupulous version of you can't find me? You can't. Oh. You know, if you think you have privacy in America today, you're living in a world with a pink sky. You can run, but you can't hide. Incidentally, I've got my eyes on you. So best beware where you roam. Ron Brown is a skip tracer in Oklahoma City. I've set my spies on you. I'm checking on all you do from A to Z. Well, that does it for today. But all the data we gathered for the show is publicly available at BackstoryRadio.org. There, you'll also find audio from a conversation I had with Pat Shea, who helped coordinate the 1975 Church Committee investigation of an earlier NSA spying scandal. Again, that's at BackstoryRadio.org. Thanks for listening, and don't be a stranger. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Jesse Dukes, Nina Ernest, Jess Ingebretson, Emily Charnock, and Tony Field, with help from Eric Mennel and Mary Capel. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is professor of history emeritus at UVA and senior research fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is professor of the humanities and president emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.